All right. So my name is Caitlin Viola and I'm a third year law and society major at Jefferson University. I just wanna first thank everyone who is able to join this remarkably relevant discussion today. Um, we're honored to be joined by our three panelists. We have Klein Law School Law Professor Elizabeth Kakura, Rutgers University Assistant Director of Doctor of Social Work Program, Erica Goldblatt-Hyatt, and Abington Jefferson Obstetrician Gynecologist, Mara Thur, to discuss the legal, medical, and sociological implications of the court's landmark decision as it was made in Roe v. Wade. In light of the changes in the court, we'll discuss the future of this decision as well as the effects of its potential overrule or modification. This event is funded by the Lawrence Katz Memorial Fund and is a part of the Arlen Specter Center Roxborough House Roundtable Series. We ask that audio and video remain off for participants and all are invited to submit any questions via the chat function on Zoom. Our panelists will get to as many questions as possible after the panel discussion. Now, I will turn things over to our moderator for this discussion, Director of Jefferson's Law and Society Program and Faculty Director of the Arlen Specter Center, Professor Evan Lane. Well, that was really nice, Caitlin. Thank you so much. Um, I really like to thank Caitlin for volunteering her time. Again, I reiterate, please turn off your video and audio for the entire presentation. I'd like to thank Dean Timmelman from CHS, my school, and MAO Annette Solosky for all their help and support in putting this together. I'd also like to thank uh, Jefferson University uh, sociologist, Catherine Jones for her earlier contributions that helped out with this uh, presentation. Uh, today is an all inspector special roundtable series. Uh, we have had a couple of these. Uh, we had traumatic brain injuries and the effects of being a sports fan, a nurses on the inside, which was an inside look at the beginnings of the AIDS crisis in New York City and in America. And we had Dare to Care, Students um, and Suicide Prevention, where we addressed a very uh, important and very dangerous situation on college campuses. Uh, we also have our regular roundtables, which are over 55 of them, which you can see on YouTube and SoundCloud. I want to make very clear what our goals are today. We are going to look and interpret the court ruling in Roe versus Wade and its progeny, which is a fancy legal word for the cases that followed and interpreted. Uh, we are going to educate as to what certain states have enacted so as to limit and amend the court's decision and discuss how they actually can do that. And then we're going to look in light of the changes to the court, and there have been several, we're going to address what the future might hold in regards to abortion rights in America. We'll be examining these issues from a legal, social, and medical perspective as we have experts in all these fields we are very proud to present to you today. As I stated, our purpose is to educate as to what is now and what might be in the future. The purpose is not to take sides in this very charged issue, but rather to give you factually what's happening and what may happen in the future. After approximately 45 minutes of discussion, we will address questions that you have. This is how it will work. You submit your questions via chat to Karen Albert, who's the Administrative Director of the All Inspector Center. She will then submit them to me orally in the question and answer section at the end of the presentation. Obviously, we cannot answer all questions uh, due to time limits, but we'll, we'll do our best. So again, one more warning, turn off your audio and video. You've done great so far. And um, now we begin. 
Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Doing well, thanks. How are you, Evan? <laughs> Good. Um, we are, if we get all of our, our people on, hold on a second. There we go. Hi, Erica. How are you? I am well, thank you. How are you, Evan? Good. And Mara, how are you? And I pronounced your name right this time, right? I'm so proud. Okay. What I'd like to do is... Um, a lot of people have heard the case, Roe versus Wade. I think most everyone knows about the case, but very few people really understand what it dealt with. But before we get into that, um, I'm gonna first go to our legal expert. Um, what was the legal situation in America before Roe regarding abortion? Sure, so abortion and, um, you know, healthcare in general, healthcare laws about healthcare and healthcare providers regulated at the state level. So different states get to decide how they wanna structure their policies around various aspects of, um, of medical care and access to healthcare. So before the US Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, there were some states that criminalized abortion outright in their state laws and some states that permitted abortion um, and regulated it, <clears throat> excuse me, under their state laws. So we had a patchwork and it was, we have, we still have a patchwork today, but the patchwork we had at that time before 1973 was one with very stark differences between criminalization outright, any, any abortion care, any provision of abortion care was illegal. And then states where abortion was available and legal. Okay, so turning from more of a sociological point of view, um, even in the states where it was illegal to have abortions, were abortions uh, being done in the United States and what risks did they pose? Is that a question for me? No, for, for our sociologist, Erica. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a proud social worker, so um, I can talk a, a little bit. Can you repeat the question? Okay, uh, even in the states where it was illegal, uh, were abortions uh, going on? Absolutely. So we know that whether legal or illegal, uh, abortions are going to happen. People are going to seek reproductive care. And the question then becomes, is this care safe? Is it accessible? And what are the ramifications of it? So of course we have uh, extreme versions of uh, people being seriously harmed by having abortions that are not safely supervised. And then we have people that are able to access care who have the resources to do so. So then ultimately you see kind of a bifurcation happening where those with privilege are able to successfully perhaps fly out of state uh, for abortions. And those that are not are doing things like anywhere from mail order medication to um, accessing uh, you know, what would be called your back alley abortion that can really put their health and their livelihood at risk. And looking again, we're going to cover all the theories here from a medical point of view, uh, Dr. Mara, um, what risks were posed to patients who are getting these as um, stated back alley abortions or not legal abortion? Uh, well, certainly there's a, there was a 
big risk of infection um, and significant infection caused by these back alley, non-sterile um, um, procedures. So that was, you know, there was also risks for bleeding as well um, and people requiring emergent care, you know, emergent hysterectomies is sort of the extreme um, as a result of some of these illegal procedures. If we can turn now to Roe, because as I said previously, a lot of people have heard the case, but from a legal point of view, and if you could ask your dog to please put himself on mute. <laughs> That'd be good. The joy of Zoom, yes, I know. Well, lucky my uh, grandchildren are not here today because they'd be boring to get here. But in any event, uh, from a legal point of view, um, what did Roe decide? So the issue before the court in Roe was the particular statute in Texas criminalizing abortion. And the, um, the plaintiff there had gone to the court to ask uh, for that statute to be struck down. Um, and the court did that. And in doing so, it, it, it went further. Rather than just striking down the Texas law, it said, here is a framework for thinking about when states can regulate abortion and when states can't, when it needs to be something that is available and up to patients and doctors to make decisions about whether- um, Join whether the meeting. Provide and receive that kind of care. And so um, uh, what the court came up with was a fairly complicated three-part trimester framework um, that defined different periods of time within a pregnancy, um, uh, early parts of pregnancy when the state can't regulate abortion except, you know, to, to prevent, to, to protect the woman's health. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, in the second trimester, um, uh, times when um, uh, that kind of regulation for um, uh, states have more discretion to regulate abortion, just to keep it simple here. And then the third trimester, um, where uh, the state's interest in potential life outweigh um, uh, the, the woman's interest, the patient's interest, um, in terminating a pregnancy and states are allowed to regulate and, and ban abortion outright. Um, so that's not the current framework that we have today, but that's what was decided in 1973 and the law that, that existed for, uh, for a stretch of time after the legalization of abortion in the United States. So just so I can summarize it best I can, in the first, um, well, the first trimester, um, the woman could have an abortion without any, the state cannot put any regulations or impediments to that. That was Roe. Se second trimester, the state could. Uh, what kind of things could the state do in the second trimester to interfere or get involved in that? Well, the Roe itself, the decision from the Supreme Court didn't address or sort of enumerate particular kinds of regulations. It's really in the aftermath of Roe, and in fact, in the aftermath of Casey, which was the, the case I think we'll talk about in a minute that was decided in 1992 that changed the legal standard that applies to abortion restrictions. It really was in the aftermath of these cases that we saw states that were interested in regulating abortion more heavily and restricting access to abortion coming up with a variety of different ways to do so. Um, uh, things like imposing um, uh, notification requirements, um, Pennsylvania passed a law that said uh, a woman who wants an abortion has to notify her husband before she goes and has an abortion. 
There are rules about um, informed consent waiting periods saying you go and have an initial consultation with a doctor and then you have to wait a period of time uh, before you can actually obtain the procedure. Um, variety of other kinds of restrictions and regulations. And um, you know, this is where the kind of law and politics gets, gets tricky because some of those um, have a justification on their face that seem benign, that seem quite reasonable, that you're trying to you know, protect um, the rights of patients to in have informed consent about their treatment. Um, and that is something that is a very important value and a very important kind of legal and ethical matter um, uh, throughout healthcare. But often the way that these regulations were designed and implemented, what they did was increase the barriers between somebody who was looking to terminate a pregnancy and actual access to that care. And so we sort of need to dig a little bit deeper and think about the practical implications of having some of these regulations uh, in place, even lawfully, um, uh, to think about the, the impact on, on actual access to care. And if I can just address with Erica, uh, again, from a social point of view, uh, when Roe made abortion legal across America, because the Supreme Court can make a law that applies to all the states, uh, did that increase abortions, decrease, or have any, what was the effect? So I'm not a historian, but, um, you know, what, what we see actually when individuals are able to access abortions is uh, we're actually, there, there are less abortions happening. So we're seeing that actually having access uh, also equates to uh, better prenatal care, um, better social support, um, and we're seeing people being able to exercise choice when it comes to reproductive health, um, which has a tremendous impact. It kind of um, flows out onto other social effects. So, you know, I, I think there's kind of a misconception that people are gonna go wild and get abortions, you know, here and there and, and not um, treat the choice as a serious, relevant, um, informed decision that is made, which is always the case, especially when you're looking at informed consent, is um, you're looking at really making a choice about your life, your future, um, sometimes a very painful choice when it comes to if you have an affected fetus, um, in a careful, considerate way. So there's a little bit of a myth of people uh, having abortions out of convenience um, that simply is not, uh, there's no research to actually support that. Uh, Mara, um, there's questions, Roe versus Wade and um, Casey, PA versus Casey, Pennsylvania versus Casey, use the term viability. Uh, they throw that in there. Can you define or give us at least an idea of what viability is when regarding uh, a fetus? Um, well, it's definitely changed a bit over um, over the years in the sense that the uh, neonatologists um, are able to really viability has moved sort of back a little bit, you know, maybe it was 26 weeks or 25 weeks. At this point, viability is at, at around 24 weeks um, of gestation. They are able to, um, and kind of full court press, take care of babies that are um, 23 weeks, 22 plus weeks. But I would say generally speaking, 24 weeks is that threshold of viability. That brings us to uh, PA versus Casey. Um, and Elizabeth, uh, that defined a redefined row, what, what happened there? 
So there the court said, well, you know, Roe, we're not overruling Roe. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of taking another look at, um, at the, the legal status, the constitutional right recognized in Roe. Um, and and be, essentially what the court did was it did away with the trimester framework and that sort of tripartite way of thinking about state regulations of abortion. Um, um, you know, in, in recognizing that this was, this is an important right, this is a constitutional right, um, and it's something that uh, that that women rely on, right? Being able to control when they're pregnant, when they become mothers, um, is something that's very central to how people organize their lives when they decide to pursue education, get married, have a family, take a job, all of those sorts of things. Um, that was part of the the kind of underlying reasoning in Casey. But Casey said, uh, we're no longer gonna, no longer going to use this trimester framework to think about state regulation of abortion. Instead, the right way to think about this is to think about whether the state policy, right, the state regulation, poses an undue burden for somebody who is um, uh, seeking to terminate a pregnancy. Is this a substantial obstacle in the way of getting this care? And if it is, then it's unconstitutional. Then it needs to be struck down. Um, and you know, the problem with this, and we can, well, I'm sure we'll get to this in the, in the discussion, um, is that what, what constitutes an undue burden? Who gets to decide that? What does that mean? It's a very broad, potentially broad uh, concept. And what we saw in the aftermath, what we've seen in the aftermath of PC is that um, it often doesn't have very much teeth in terms of striking down uh, regulations that do impose uh, significant barriers between people seeking abortion care and their ability to access that care. Um, uh, and so in, in the way that it's been interpreted and applied over the years, we've seen a lot more state regulations of abortion ruled constitutional under that standard um, uh, in a way that has just further exacerbated this incredible patchwork that we have of different states having whole different menus of regulations on the books about when and how people can access abortion care. So just to summarize that for a second, Roe comes out with a, a rule that applies to all of America, but then Casey comes out and states, abortion is still legal, but each state can decide what it thinks or what regulations it wants to do as long as they don't put an undue burden. And that means Georgia, Texas, New York, New Jersey, PA could all have different regulations. Is, is that what you're saying? Well, that was true under Roe as well. States could have different regulations, pass different laws. It was just that when they came under challenge, when somebody said, no, we think that goes too far and that is unconstitutional, there was a different standard that applied. So now after Casey, we have this, the question that is asked of all state abortion regulations is, does this pose an undue burden uh, on that person's ability to access the care? Um, and I'll go first to Eric and then to Mara. What are some of these restrictions that you have come across in studying this um, that have been imposed state by state? Oh my goodness. How do you define a burden? A burden of choice, a burden of um, decision-making when it comes to, let's say, a pregnancy where a parent finds out at a regular anatomy scan that their fetus has a life-limiting disorder, um, an anomaly that would cause them to either uh, have a short life 
or one of pain and suffering. And uh, imagine being told this information halfway through a pregnancy and then the clock starts. And depending on what state you're in, you have to gather information. Now, if you're in Pennsylvania, you might go to Children's Hospital and you might get fetal echocardiograms, MRIs. Now let's hope that Children's Hospital gets you in right away, but let's say there's more than likely a wait. And let's say that some of the findings are inconclusive and now maybe you need another opinion or you're starting to weigh the balance of, well, I have a living child who's healthy. What's the life of that child gonna look like if I have a medically compromised or terminally ill fetus or child? So burdens start piling up and you've got a clock going. I mean, you have in Pennsylvania only a few more weeks if you're diagnosed at 20 weeks uh, to make that decision before you've got to find care elsewhere. So um, to me, that sounds like a burden, but does the legal literature capture that? Um, so I, I, I would kind of, I would stop there and, and allow uh, for Mara's thoughts too. So um, in terms of barriers to, um, to abortions, you know, certainly we see um, it, that it does vary sort of state by state and even institution uh, by institution. So if you are employed by a Catholic um, employer, if you work for St. Mary's or you work for a church organization, you know, a lot of those, you know, you, you don't have the same um, uh, options um, that you might have, you know, even, you know, going backwards and having contraceptive care, let alone having a pregnancy and, you know, trying to make that decision. So that's certainly a barrier. There are certain specific um, institutional barriers where, um, you know, say, for example, you're 20 weeks pregnant and your baby has a lethal anomaly or um, then you have to potentially get the okay from, say, a chief of staff of a hospital in order to have the procedure done. Um, you know, in some institutions, they're even talking about that, that mother requiring a neonatal uh, consultation with a neonatologist um, to determine sort of what that level of um, compromise that fetus has. So there's lots of sort of um, emotional barriers and just sort of logistical barriers to, um, to getting that service. And I can add a couple other examples if you want, in addition to the, the, the very onerous time restrictions, right? What, up until what week is it possible to obtain an abortion in a particular state? We see other kinds of things, the, the informed consent requirement that I uh, uh, mentioned before, which sometimes includes, you know, requires two separate visits, and it might include a, a one visit where the patient has to hear a state mandated script about what the care, what the, you know, termination procedure consists of, read by a particular uh, doctor, um, uh, so that here we've got the state telling a doctor what a doctor needs to tell a patient in order to provide informed consent which is an incredible intrusion into the doctor-patient relationship. We see restrictions that, are, that target clinics that provide abortion. So clinics that are freestanding, not attached to a hospital, um, where some hostile, uh, abortion hostile legislatures have said, you, in order to be able to provide abortions, you need to have hallways that are a certain width and certain kinds of emergency equipment in your clinics that make you look like an, an ambulatory surgical center 
requiring much more sort of involved specifications than is what is actually medically necessary, what is re required to provide safe abortion care, but in a way that is very costly for clinics and has forced some clinics to close. So some of the, and then there's a whole other, you know, range of kinds of restrictions that states have, have passed to kind of chip away and make it harder and harder for people living within their state to get abortion. And some of those target clinics and some of those um, you know, really bear on the individual patient experience. Okay, Erica, that makes me think, um, if I live in New Jersey, or strike that, if I live in Georgia and I wanna to go to more liberal state, Jersey, if I have money to travel, I can get care in New Jersey, which I may not be able to get in Georgia, but I have to pay for the flight and I have to pay for a hotel and all that type of thing. How does class and wealth factor into all this? I mean, let's talk about the practicalities here and let's talk about the fact that we are a nation divided by uh, privilege and have and have not, um, even in 2021. And I think, you know, thankfully, social justice issues are becoming more apparent to uh, all of us. But there is a long history of people with privilege accessing safe care. I mean, let's talk about um, paying upfront $15,000 for an abortion, a later abortion at a clinic in Colorado. Now let's talk about the plane ride. Let's talk about a hotel stay for a couple of days procedure. Let's talk about childcare. If you have children, uh, you need to leave those children to go and have the abortion. Um, let's talk about aftercare. And this is of course not even touching on uh, access to psychotherapy that is so critical or having again, the time to walk through the decision uh, with your loved ones, with uh, clergy providers. Um, and the fact of the matter is that even the narrative that I'm telling you right now is one of, I think, uh, a white female, a white woman's narrative. And we don't see people um, of color, of uh, lower class and status able to access not only abortion, but also prenatal care. So there's this, again, there's also this discussion of kind of the appropriate abortion, the abortion due to fetal anomaly, which is, you know, uh, according to some pro-life groups appropriate, whereby there are individuals that don't know they're pregnant until uh, later on, simply because perhaps they're too busy taking care of other children, working multiple jobs, um, a whole host of conditions that we simply don't see because these are folks that don't get the attention because they're busy working they're busy uh, living their lives. And so uh, as you start to peel away at this and you see the privilege and the challenges, you also appreciate that every abortion then is one that is permissible because each individual circumstance is so different and access is always inextricably related to class and often race as well. I'd like to turn now to really the focus of our title, which is the future. Um, of Roe versus Wade. Um, under the previous president, uh, there were three um, new justices picked. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. Um, she obviously was a very strong proponent of choice and she was replaced by another judge who I think most people would agree doesn't hold the same opinions as uh, Ginsburg did. Um, the cases are coming up, um, Arkansas, just passed a law that uh, fundamentally outlawed abortion. Um, that was just the other day. Um, Liz, um, for those who are not 
that legally um, astute. How can Arkansas do that if Roe versus Wade and it's defined by Casey is still law? How could that be? Well, there are actually a number of states that have passed laws and currently have laws on the book um, uh, restricting abortion very early in pregnancy, right? At the point of, you know, detection of a fetal heartbeat. This is, you know, the sort of one of the newest waves or a new wave of, um, of, of restrictions. Now, what happens when a state passes that law, it gets challenged. And under the current, you know, Supreme Court precedent, those bills are, um, those laws are basically frozen. They're, they're, they're put on hold. They continue to be on the books in that state so that if there were a change from the, from the Supreme Court saying this is no longer, you know, we're, we're changing the standard by which we, we evaluate um, and, and, um, and, and deem constitutional these kinds of state restrictions on abortion, um, then suddenly those laws could go into effect. So, you know, there are really fantastic lawyers on the ground who watch these things very closely as they kind of percolate up through hostile state legislatures and then are ready to challenge them when they do pass. Um, uh, you know, but it, there, it does feel like, uh, you know, should there be a dramatic shift in the, the sort of constitutional standard governing all of these state laws, um, then there are a number of places where the landscape would, would change very dramatically. Gary Stafford. Join the meeting. Go ahead. That's some weird yeah, so, Zoom thing. Go ahead. Um, so that's, that's the story. And there are all, always these challenges going up, right? The Supreme Court does not hear every challenge to every abortion law that comes. And there are certain reasons why certain challenges of certain statutes may, may and will reach the Supreme Court. And so there are folks who are kind of watching that and trying to figure out what is going to be the test case. What's the next thing that's going to come up? We just last June, uh, last, yeah, I guess it was decided in June, maybe early July, the June medical case, um, which was uh, another challenge um, to state restrictions. Um, and in this case, very similar state restrictions to those that had been struck down in 2016 in the whole women's health case. And so again, this is fighting about that undue burden standard and how do we apply that? And how do we think about whether these kinds of state restrictions are in fact constitutional or whether they pose such a significant obstacle to people seeking abortion care that they can't be upheld, that they need to be struck down um, under, uh, under kind of Roe and its progeny, as you said, under the, the sort of constitutional framework um, governing abortion. In light of the fact that there is a possibility that Roe versus Wade may be overruled, um, we're going to get into that more specifically, but I, before we get into the legalities of it, I really like to get on the ground as far as um, nervousness, as far as um, discussion. Uh, first, uh, with uh, Mara, with your patients, have you seen uh, any concern uh, or in concern the medical community as there might be a change in the law? Well, I, I certainly think there is um, some trepidation on the part of the physicians. Um, uh, the OBGYN Center at Abington is the clinic, um, it's resident run, um, but there are um, a couple of the attendings who, um, this is sort of their, um, they run what's called the Ryan program, which is um, a program that, um, 
helps to teach residents sort of contraceptive and abortion care. Um, so I think that they find um, it, it's incredibly important so that, you know, if, if there is a, um, you know, a concern um, that they're able to teach residents not only the actual specifics of performing uh, abortions, but also being able to provide that counseling. Um, so I think for them, um, it's made them even more sort of passionate and um, motivated to make sure that um, new, new um, OBGYN physicians coming out of residency are prepared and educated on how to properly counsel their patients, whether or not they decide to perform these things um, in private practice or not. Um, at least they have their arms with that information. So I think even more so now with the um, question marks of what's going to happen in the future. Um, that's, that's been very, very important. Um, from an educational standpoint for the residents. Erica? So I work with parents that have had abortions. Uh, many of the parents that I work with have ended pregnancies later um, in the second and third trimester. And I cannot tell you how fearful many of these parents are who are currently trying to conceive again or might be pregnant uh, that they will have uh, their choice taken away from them. Uh, many of the folks I've worked with have had to access abortion in other states, have gone up against these undue burdens and you know, really any element that removes a woman's choice or a pregnant person's choice is a, a burden to them. Um, they are so concerned about being unable to access care and to have this choice taken away from them. Uh, and it is, you know, it, it reflects upon their grief. And um, when you've made this decision, it's, it's not one you've taken lightly. Um, we spend a lot of time in therapy talking through sometimes the barriers and the stigma that these parents have gone through, the shunning from sometimes religious communities or uh, family members. And going through that was hard for many of these parents. But the idea of having the choice taken away from them is uh, almost unspeakable. Now let's, let's get directly, I'm gonna to go to Liz on this, on a legal point of view. Uh, as a former attorney, and I used to teach constitutional law um, and grow, I, I see there can be really four different avenues that could happen. One, the court um, will refuse to even hear it and just let the states do what they're doing along the way. Um, I think that's unlikely. Um, the court can completely overrule uh, Roe uh, across the nation. And we'll talk about the effects of that. Or it can say, hey, it's a state by state and put it back to where it used to be. Um, so where do you, what do you think might happen here? Uh, and then we'll go over the ramifications with all of us here on each one of these options. Let's first, if they do nothing, we know it's gonna be what it is now. But let's say they decide it's state to state that we're gonna overrule Roe, but it, we put this back as a state option to decide. How, what are the ramifications of that? Well, so I think, you know, from the scenarios that you laid out, I agree with you that it's unlikely the court is just going to block its ears and not hear future abortion challenges, right? This is clearly gonna to continue to be 
uh, an issue that they weigh in on and, and, and we're gonna see different kinds of questions come before the court, right? As we see, you know, hostile legislators continue to engage in creative ways of restricting abortion. And I say creative, not in a positive sense. Um, uh, you know, I also think it's unlikely that we're going to see, you know, a, uh, a, a, a kind of federal law that criminalizes abortion everywhere be upheld as constitutional, right? That there are too many conservatives who, um, who care very deeply about states' rights um, to, you know, to be comfortable with that kind of federal incursion um, uh, on, on states' abilities to kind of regulate this stuff within their borders for their own state populations. So then what does that look like? Does it look like an overruling of Roe where then um, we say, you know, there's no more uh, constitutional right? Or does it look like uh, really what we've seen over time, which is this kind of steady whittling away, um, saying, yes, there's still this right, but here are all of these ways that it can be constitutional to restrict and restrict and restrict and restrict, right? Which was a very early <clears throat> strategy identified by people opposed to abortion sort of a death by a thousand cuts strategy. Um, and in, in a variety of ways, it has been quite a successful strategy. Um, I think, you know, what that can mean, right? There's, you know, there's now this sort of um, uh, waiting to see what will happen with ongoing application of the undue burden standard um, and whether uh, we, you know, we saw a sort of um, more robust version of that articulated in the 2016 Whole Women's Health case, where the court said, actually, in order to figure out what an undue burden is, you really have to look at the benefits and weigh them against the burdens. And that gives us much more understanding, right? We have to look at, at, at actual evidence on this, right? Research that tells us something about what kinds of uh, uh, barriers this imposes, right? If, we, if this law goes into effect in Texas, how many clinics are gonna close? And we look at evidence on that. Right? And then we can use that information to figure out if a law poses an undue burden. So will that, will that meaning of undue burden continue to stand? Or is that a place where, particularly after uh, the June medical case in, in 2020, where we're going to see that meaning of undue burden further constricted and go back to a, a standard really that's much more permissive, right? That says, sure, that might make it a little bit harder, but that's not an undue burden. That's not a substantial obstacle, um, right? In ways that I think are very counter to what you know Erica has described in terms of the you know the real impact on um, patients and their families when they're in a you know particularly acute moment in their lives right and they need responsive care they need supportive services and it's very hard to access it depending on where they live and so I I think you know uh, you know it it would not surprise me to see this continued whittling away you know this sort of slowly over time further and further, um, uh, uh, you know, um, restrictions or a more cramped reading of, of what actually, um, you know, an undue burden is and how that might make these state regulations unconstitutional. And I think that has very different, you know, it has important implications for what abortion care looks like in the future, right? How people are accessing care, where they're accessing care. Um, uh, and there may be ways that, you know, particularly access to medication abortion um, can, can also be kind of changing the landscape and changing what access to care means with important ramifications. I don't share with you as much as an optimistic point of view and saying what you're saying is optimistic is really low bar, but I think it could be very strong possibility 
in light of what um, Justice Thomas has already said, what, what in light of Justice Kavanaugh has already said, and who knows what the new justice is going to think, um, that it is possible they can overrule it throughout, um, saying that uh, adopting this personhood idea where the fetus has equal rights to um, the mother and thus making it murder. Um, thus, abortion will be illegal throughout. You don't agree with it. You don't think that's a possibility or a probability. What do you think? It's certainly a possibility. And I would not say that my take on the future of uh, abortion rights is an optimistic one at all. Um, I feel very, very strongly that um, uh, the, particularly the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the court to replace Justice Ginsburg is um, a really, really dire change for the future of reproductive healthcare access. Um, you know, the personhood question is a really interesting one when we think about implications outside of the context of abortion. Because of course, if that becomes a, a, an applicable standard, that implicates access to contraception and it implicates access to assisted reproductive technologies, use of IVF and a whole range of other things that um, a lot of people now rely on in creation of their families. And so I think there's some real political sticking points, right? To even getting that law passed <laughs> in a way that could then be sort of, you know, replace, uh, replace the standard, become a, a sort of new constitutional working. And we've seen that in places that have had personhood amendments on their ballots, that, that people, voters have actually rejected that because at least some portion of the voting population have recognized the implications, right? If, that if you say, you know, life begins at conception and is, you know, uh, the sort of personhood um, applies, you know, from that moment uh, in a way that makes a whole swath of um, uh, reproductive healthcare um, uh, beyond the pale, um, then that implicates a lot of other interests that people hold very dearly in terms of um, uh, how they organize their lives and create their families. Uh, Mara, addressing to a physician looking at, the, at a circumstance, Georgia has passed a law, which again is on hold, you know, as you stated, but could be put into effect depending on what the court does, where if someone leaves Georgia and goes to get a, um, an abortion in New Jersey or New York, which most likely with more liberal uh, abortion uh, choice uh, laws, when they return to Georgia, they could be subject to arrest uh, or will be subject to arrest. As a physician practicing in Pennsylvania, um, which has so far more liberal laws than Georgia, how would that affect your practice? How would it affect your, your doctor-patient uh, relationship? Um, well, I mean, it's, I, I can't even imagine that that, um, as a, as a woman who is seeking that kind of care, um, that sort of uh, burden to have that, you know, not only are you making this decision to a, a very difficult one, but then potentially, um, you know, being uh, 
arrested or somehow being criminally prosecuted for making one of the most, you know, difficult decisions of your life. And, and definitely what Erica had said before is that, you know, th these women that are coming for abortions are not, um, you know, this is not a flippant sort of thing. This is not something where they use it as a form of contraception. Um, people that come and seek abortions are, um, uh, very thoughtful, I would say, for the most part. Um, and it is not an easy decision that they come to. So, you know, for us as, um, as healthcare providers, um, I think it's very important to always sort of be patient-centered and always um, sort of give them the opportunity to make those decisions. So even though I don't have any control, I'm not from Georgia, I'm not, you know, I, I, I think it just motivates us as physicians to just provide the best care that we can and the most support um, to these patients as possible. Um, and I think that's really kind of the most crucial thing is to, um, is to provide that, um, that open communication with the patient to make the right decision for themselves. I'm gonna ask one more question then turn it over because believe it or not, 45 minutes is gone. I can't believe it. I, I, would, I look down, I can't believe it. Um, but assuming the court overrules Roe versus Way, uh, can Congress or the president uh, do anything in response to revive, revitalize the law? Uh, I guess that's best for Liz. So um, what's your answer to that? Well, it would depend on what the decision from the, the court is, what you mean by overruling Roe v. Wade. I mean, there are certainly, we've seen attempts and we will likely continue to see attempts to pass federal legislation regulating abortion. Um, uh, you know, but again, the central tension here is really about, you know, what the standard, what standard applies to, you know, to state regulations. Now, if we're saying, uh, you know, no standard anymore, do what you will. I mean, I think that's un unlikely right? because they're, the court is going to sort of keep a, a thumb on the scale in terms of, um, uh, you know, defining some of these interests. Um, you know, the, the executive does not have the power to, um, you know, to overrule a decision from the Supreme Court. Um, that does become the law of the land. Um, as we've seen in you know, a variety of areas where the Supreme Court has issued a decision, sometimes that then goes back to Congress um, uh, to, to, to refine something, to, you know, to pass a new law that sort of complies with whatever the, the court has said the, the Constitution requires. But of course, it depends on you know, what, the, what the substance of that ruling would be from the Supreme Court, how much room there might be from a, you know, if we're thinking about a, a sort of um, a abortion access friendly Congress, um, which is not one that we uh, uh, have a, a lot of over time um, or have in any significant majority. Um, you know, it would depend on the, the ruling of the court to, to see if there was something that Congress could do to remediate that and to sort of, um, uh, you know, soften the blow. Now there's, there's legislation currently in Congress um, to address the particular restriction on abortion, which has to do with women who rely on Medicaid or other public insurance coverage for their health care, because we have federal law now that says if you are receiving Medicaid, uh, if you're on Medicaid or you know um, federal employees or on um, in the military, Tricare, 
that abortion care is not covered under your insurance unless your state chooses to cover it separately. Um, and there's been a lot of really powerful advocacy and recognition of the truly devastating impact that this has on low-income people and their access to abortion care. And so, uh, you know, there's some possibility of passing that legislation um, to, to, to change access to abortion care. Of course, that could then be impacted by whatever the court chooses to do down the line that might change whatever constitutional standard applies uh, across the board. Thank you. Um, at this point, I'd like to introduce Karen Albert, the um, Administrative Director of the All Inspector Center, uh, regarding any questions that have been raised by the audience. Okay. Hello, everybody. We just have a few. The first question is, is there a correlation between availability of legal abortions and availability of easily accessible birth control that could help explain the lower rate of abortions when they're legally available? I can take that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so a, a great example to look at is the Affordable Care Act, which actually did that, which um, allowed for access um, to contraception. And as a result, we saw abortion rates decrease. So there's certainly evidence to, to suggest that that's exactly what happened. Um, and and I, um, I would just add um, that, you know, there's this whole concept of family planning um, and there are actually um, accredited, they're now doing accredited fellowships for family planning um, where um, uh, it's not only access to abortions and teaching residents how to perform those, but um, also for, um, reproductive and contraceptive choices as well. So for long acting um, reversible contraception, particularly IUDs, um, a uh, device called Nexplanon, which um, has been um, you know, very, very crucial in terms of decreasing the rates of pregnancy and decreasing the rates of abortion as well. Um, actually, one question came in from Helen from the UK, that was sort of a question, I just thought I would bring it up because it was something you said, Erica. Um, she's saying $15,000, I think she's just shocked that is that really the cost of, you know, an out-of-pocket cost for an abortion. Um, so that's yes. what you were saying. Right? Yeah. Yes, I mean, so, uh, and, and oftentimes payment is required upfront and, and not to mention the cost on uh, providers as well, who sometimes are even putting their own lives and, and safety at risk to perform, especially later abortions. Um, absolutely, there is an upfront real financial hit that families have to take. And sometimes they will be borrowing money, taking out loans, because many of us don't have 15 grand cash on hand for the procedure itself. And again, that's notwithstanding the plane rides, you know, some of the other things that maybe you can put on a credit card. So she's saying she's joining from the UK and absolutely shocked. And so the <laughs> NHS fund abortions yes. and holistic care. And I can also, um, to sort of piggyback onto that, you know, in, at least in my experience at Abington, the, the price is certainly not $15,000, but that's also because Pennsylvania's, you know, again, I don't know the specifics of every state, um, but I will say in the, in the clinic setting, it's, it's significantly less, particularly if you're having an in-office, either medical abortion or, um, or um, in-office um, um, 
termination. So the, the price is significantly less. It's actually, you know, somewhere in the range of about $350 in, in a clinic setting, um, which is not, I mean, that is, it's not an insignificant amount of money, certainly for that, the, um, that patient population, but, you know, also I think Pennsylvania is, is a very different climate than some of the other states. So another question is how do these laws apply to the morning after pill or plan B? Well, I, I guess that's a question for me about, cause it says laws in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really important to be clear about the distinction between emergency contraception and medication abortion. And that's probably something that, that Dr. Thur can, can, can spell out for us more clearly, but, um, if, if the question here is about medication abortion, right, there are, there are lots of ways that states are restricting people's access to um, a, a medication, a non-surgical abortion, um, which is something that uh, currently is permitted up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. Um, uh, so states have passed um, uh, rules about uh, who can provide this and in what setting, restricting that, restricting it to physicians only, excluding advanced practice nurses and physician assistants um, uh, uh, who are safe and capable providers of this kind of care. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think th the, the question of medication abortion is definitely a kind of um, watch this space, right? There are so many interesting um, developments going on right now around telemedicine and abortion care. Um, that's been happening for a while. There have been efforts to expand access to abortion using telemedicine for early abortion with medication um, for people who live in areas where there is no access to a clinic, right? And no access to a provider within a reasonable geographic distance. And now living under COVID pandemic times, um, we again are seeing these questions about telemedicine and what a boon it has been for so many of us who have thought to avoid being in uh, spaces where exposure to COVID would be greater, being able to connect with a healthcare provider over the computer or on a phone, right, has eased, eased those, those stressors and the, uh, stemmed the spread of the, the virus. But of course, as is often the case, abortion is accepted, right, is sort of carved out from just healthcare and is often subject to different and more onerous um, rules. But I think that that might be a place where we see um, you know, states and legislators who are interested in expanding access, even under the constraints uh, imposed by um, any future Supreme Court rulings, um, telemedicine and access to medication abortion, um, uh, and, and even and, and self-managed abortion in general, just being able to, um, to, to secure this medication directly from a pharmacy, say, um, and be able to, uh, uh, to handle one's own care in that way um, uh, is, is, you know, potentially on the, on the horizon in some really beneficial ways in terms of thinking about access to care. And just specifically, um, you know, sort of in, in terms of barriers to medical abortions, um, you know, in Pennsylvania, you actually, well, during the time of COVID, they have this no touch idea where you can actually get verbal consent. So there's a 24 hour consent that's um, required in Pennsylvania, but in the world of COVID, they've been able to do telemedicine visits like you spoke about and get a verbal consent. And then the patient comes in 24 hours later to have their medication um, administered. But the, the um, 
uh, the patient actually has to physically take the mifepristone, which is the one of the medications for a medical abortion in the presence of a provider, which I think is just <laughs> just um, definitely a barrier to care in terms of forcing this this patient to undergo all of this stuff, and then actually you have to monitor them. You're policing them to make sure that they take it correctly. Um, so that's you know that's definitely a a barrier, but there is some improvements at least with COVID. But we'll see what happens once the restrictions are sort of. Um, um, loosened a little bit, whether they'll continue to let providers do that 24 hour consent via telehealth or make the patient then have to come twice to the office for the consent and then 24 hours later for the administration of the medicine. There's another question. Is there a possibility we will see an expansion of the Supreme Court with Biden's presidency? That's a little, I guess, Elizabeth, I don't know what you're thinking is, or Evan. Another big question. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, Biden has appointed a commission of experts to sort of look more broadly. They have a, a slightly broader mandate, not just the expansion of the Supreme Court, but looking at other reforms within the federal judiciary. Um, and I do think we'll see some kind of action there. I, I think the, you know, sort of political response, political pressure, um, uh, after um, various developments over the last four years, I'm not sure that that will result in actually expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court, but that could look like term limits um, for you know, judges within for the Supreme Court or throughout the federal judiciary, um, other adjustments to how we staff the courts. Um, you know, I think that there's, um, you know, there's, a, there's a interesting tension. Join the meeting really committed to the, the, the structure, the constitutional structure and thinking about the institutions that we have and how well they have uh, in many respects served us, um, you know, throughout the nation's history. And then, um, you know, the sort of urgency of changing with the times and particularly with kind of um, some of the more ideological um, and cynical uses of those institutions. Um, uh, in ways that have eroded rights and, um, and you know, threatened kind of the very underpinnings of, of democracy. And so a lot of those debates, you know, center right around that question of expanding the Supreme Court. And so you see some unlikely sort of alliances, liberal conservative in terms of people who um, favor or disfavor those kinds of proposals. Um, Karen, one more question? Yeah, I think that actually those are all the questions. So. Okay. Well, then it's a perfect opportunity for me to thank the panel. Thank you so much. I can't believe the time went this fast. Um, I hope we covered what people want us to cover, but I think we actually got in some very good discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really do appreciate that. And everybody who's listening, thank you. And please, everybody keep safe. Karen, you could stop the recording.